All right, the topic for tonight is the Zealot Movement. The Zealot Movement. <coughs> Before we can directly discuss the, the history of the Zealot Movement, we have to just uh, finish up with the last few procurators we didn't mention last week. There were, I said there were seven procurators between the year 44 and the year 66, so seven guys running the country within a span of 22 years. Nobody has a very long uh, tenure. They were primarily there to enrich themselves, to cause trouble, and to get out. Well, number five was Portius Festus. Now, Felix had been the longest-running procurator from the year 52 to the year 60. He was deposed because of his inability to deal with the matter of civic privileges for the Jews. This was a long-standing problem in the mixed cities where there were Hellenistic peoples, so-called Greeks, and Jews, and it was a polis. question is, do Jews have rights as citizens, as first-class citizens, or are they somehow second-class citizens? And at Caesarea, which was the seat of government in Roman Judea, um, this was a real question. And the fact that uh, Felix was unable to resolve it satisfactorily, and it caused uh, occasional scuffles in the street, Nero didn't like that. It was, it was a display of incompetence. And so Felix was, re- was removed from office by Nero and replaced with Festus. Uh, during Festus's tenure, Nero ruled in favor of the heathens in Caesarea, thereby establishing that the Jews really were second-class citizens, and they didn't have rights along the lines of heathens. Of course, did the Jews take this uh, easily? And lying down, are fine, we'll be second-class citizens? No. The Jews are in their own country. It's one thing to, to declare a Jew to be second-class in Alexandria or Asia Minor in Antioch, in one of these cities in the, in the Chutz Laaretz. But in the Eretz Yisrael, to declare that Greeks have, or so-called Greeks have be- more rights, more uh, uh, political privileges than Jews, it's not something that our ancestors would have willingly uh, accepted. And so this issue continued to smolder for the next six years and was one of the primary reasons for the outbreak of violence in the year 66 that became the Great War, the Big Revolt. Okay. Now, during Festus's tenure, there was also the dispute that we mentioned uh, between Agrippus II and uh, the the temple uh, priestly bureaucracy, where Agrippa was, technically speaking, the overseer of the temple, despite not being the king of Judea, he was the king of the northern provinces, but he had... uh, authority or responsibility over what happened on the Temple Mount, and he had a little palace uh, that overlooked the Temple Mount, and the, the priests didn't like that he was spying on them, so they built a wall to conceal the Avodah from his watchful eye, and he didn't like that he wanted it torn down, and in the end, Nero ruled in favor of the priests, uh, surprisingly, uh, but Agrippa got his vengeance in other ways. Now, um, also during Festus's tenure, Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, um, had his final hearing in the Holy Land. He was accused of crimes. Exactly what crimes? Well, according to the New Testament, the Jews couldn't exactly figure that out. Of course, the New Testament is a biased document uh, written by the dis- disciples of Paul, so uh, it figures that uh, the text will be more favorably disposed towards Paul. So what did the Jews claim that he did wrong? Was it a a violation of the halakha? Was it a violation of some kind of theological point that he was a heretic? Doesn't exactly say. Doesn't matter. The point is that he was arrested and he's going to be charged. He goes before Festus for a hearing and Festus says, why don't you go to Jerusalem for adjudication to the court of the Jews? Why is the Roman procurator... Um, abdicating responsibility for hearing what amounts to a political case 
and saying, take your justice from the Jews. Because the Jews are blamed if he's going to be uh, convicted. Okay, so that's one point. Another is, he's a new man in town. After eight years of Felix, who wasn't especially popular because he married, he, he was, he was the, the goy who married Agrippa I's daughter, Drusilla, in an intermarriage, Nisueta Arovit. So the previous procurator was hated. He comes in and doesn't want to make too many enemies right away, would like to make some friends. He wants to curry favor with the Jews if he can. So one of the ways of doing that is taking a, a, a religio-political criminal like Paul, like Saul of Tarsus, and say, oh, to the Jews, maybe you should try him. You want to try him? You want to execute him? Go right ahead. This way, the blame is on them, and plus, they feel, the Jews feel good about themselves, and they can, they can thank Festus for giving the opportunity to, to prosecute the offender. But... Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, was a Roman citizen. Was a Roman citizen, which is a rarity for the Jews of the of the diaspora in the first in the middle of the first century CE to have the rights of Roman citizenship. But he did, and therefore it was his it was his right to demand adjudication in Rome by the emperor or by the emperor's court, and so he was taken off to Rome where eventually he is executed according to tradition, according to the, 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 that of the Church Fathers. Uh, he was beheaded in Rome in the year 62 or 63. We're not exactly sure. But it was Festus who offered the opportunity for justice at Jerusalem. It was declined, and therefore he was shipped off to Rome. Okay. So this happened after his, his vision that he had on the road? To oh, that was in the year 44. That was 15 years earlier. He had several trips around the world uh, preaching in the synagogues throughout the late 40s and throughout the 50s. Well, he, he had offended the religious sensitivities of Jews in communities around the Near East uh, by interrupting their Sabbath services and pre- preaching in ways that were contrary to either to the halakha or to our uh, uh, theological traditions. Yeah, sure, absolutely. We're trying to make converts to Christianity. Huh? He preached of a belief in Jesus as Messiahship. Okay, so... How did he become a citizen of Rome? He was born one. Yeah. It's like America. Uh, well, no, not everyone who was born into, into, into the empire was a citizen, but he, from his family, whatever it was, had citizenship rights, and therefore he took advantage of them, but much to his own detriment because he got killed. Okay. What would the Jews have done? So what would the Jews have done? Presumably, the Sanhedrin would have tried to execute him, because as we're going to see in a moment, uh, another major church figure was executed by the high priest, uh, within two years after that of this story taking place, uh, the, the, the Jewish hierarchy in Jerusalem was out for blood against the church. They despised the church by this point in time. Uh, their, their hatred for the church will grow even more when the, when the, the, the Jerusalem Christians run away at, uh, at the height of the rebellion, showing how, tr- how treasonous they are. But even by, in the late 50s already, the early Christians are not well liked. Okay. Is this the high priest that committed suicide afterwards? No, this is the high priest who would end up getting killed in the in the, in the zealot siege in the year sixty eight. We'll we'll get to that. Okay. Yes, they were all Jews. Well, the extent to which they were pious, I don't know, because there's a big machlokus about whether Paul was a religious Jew. Some say he was only in the presence of the synagogues, so he could he could uh, be afforded an opportunity to preach, but in the privacy of his own home, he may have been needing chazer. We, we, we don't know. 
Um, but the Jews of the Jerusalem church were religious Jews along the lines of any other Pharisee except who believed in the Messiahship of Jesus. Okay, so Festus died in office. He wasn't uh, deposed by the emperor. A rare example of someone who actually well, didn't get fired, he just died. His uh, successor was Lucius Albinus, who ruled from 62 to 64. But there was a bit of an interregnum. Um, and before he had a chance to assume power, the high priest Ananus II, or Hanania ben Hanania, uh, was named after his father, which is an unusual thing. Um, he was a uh, That could be. Uh, but those he things happen. European, though. Uh, no. <laughs> so. It's, it's, po- it's certainly possible. So, Hanania ben Hanania, who was the high priest, took advantage of the power vacuum, and as the leader of the Sadducean wing of the Sanhedrin, he executed several of his political opponents, including James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church. On what grounds? On theological error? On who knows what? But was James uh, guilty of some kind of uh, capital sin according to Torah law? It's possible that he wasn't. It's possible this was an extrajudicial or judicial but, not, but unfair execution of people who were just politically un- unpopular. He's going against the Rebbeim Well, the Rebbeim aren't in charge. There are no Rebbeim at this point. Uh, I mean, the, the proto Pharisees may have some seats on the Sanhedrin. They have some seats on the Sanhedrin, but the Sadducean party is still firmly in control in the, in the, in the early 60s. And they don't like the Christians on theological grounds. But is that alone? Is that alone a sufficient reason to execute someone? Not yet. Not yet. It. it All right, so th- th- that's Simon Caiaphas, and that's a, a legendary story of dubious validity. But the point is, the Jerusalem church, as much as it might have been a thorn in the side of the, of the, the traditional believers, um, it was not on, on the verge of, of destroying Judaism. So the point is that he, he may not have been guilty of a sin in Torah law that makes you high of Misa. He was guilty of being a political adversary of the high priest who, in a moment of perceived strength, figured he could get away with something. No, but if the church believed in Trinity... No, no, nobody believes in that yet. That's, that's much later. That's, that's paganism later. That's, that's, that's the pagan church later. Who killed James? Ananus ben Ananus. Uh, as, the, as the leader of the Sanhedrin, uh, had a perfunctory trial, like a, a, a kangaroo court... And, and they executed him. Now, is, that, is that Ananias in the New Testament? Yes. Okay. So Ananias had overstepped his bounds. Clearly overstepped his bounds because it, already from the year 30, roughly thereabouts, uh, capital punishment was not in the hands of the Sanhedrin. It was in the hands of the procurators. So he did something that was uh, way over the line. And he had to be punished. So Agrippa, King Agrippa is the second king of the northern provinces, but overseer of the temple, quickly deposed Ananus as the high priest, knowing you know as a pro-Roman king, wanting not to do anything to offend his overlords, he realizes this guy did something wrong. I have to get rid of him. So Ananus, but Ananus was only high priest for like three months. Okay, Albinus comes on in. And he takes some early measures against the Sicarii, the guys with the daggers who are stabbing people in the streets of, of Jerusalem. 
But then he gives up on fighting the zealots because he realizes that the zealot movement is fairly strong in the countryside and he doesn't have the, uh, the wherewithal militarily to, uh, to deal with the threats. So instead, just let it be. It's like they do with ISIS today. They don't, they don't bother to fight it. Okay? Now, what did Albinus do? He, was, he focused on bribe-taking and on profiting by being the, a broker of prisoner exchanges between competing factions. Remember, there are a lot of private armies, there are a lot of different factions in, in Judea at this point who don't like each other. Whether it's the, the Greek population, the Zealot Jews, the moderate Jews, okay, the Samaritans, there are many groups that are out there uh, engaging in low-level armed conflict. So you have prisoners that are taken. They're not necessarily executed. They're for ransom. So what does the uh, what does Albinus the procurator do? He does. He's the broker. He takes care of the ransom payments and he makes money off of it. Okay. Uh, upon being recalled by Nero in the year sixty four, Albinus did something that set into motion a lot of chaos and um, really ruined the, the situation in the countryside. He opened up Guantanamo Bay. He, 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 uh, he let loose all the prisoners. All the prisoners go free. Now, the, the most horrific offenders were executed. Whether they were deserving of capital punishment or not, doesn't matter. The, the, more, the more violent and dangerous offenders, in his eyes, they were executed. But everyone else was allowed to obtain their freedom. So now you have people who were known threats to the peace, whether Jewish or otherwise, um, who are out there and now ready to fight for their cause. So the country rapidly uh, accelerated uh, the descent into chaos and war. Albinus was simply hastening the inevitable as far as he was concerned. He was replaced by Gessius Florus. Florus was the worst of them all. He was in charge from 64 to 66. And when he plundered the temple to make up for a budget shortfall, which was the result of reduced tax revenue on account of uh, economic depression, uh, the Jews broke out in open revolt. So plundering the temple is something you can't get away with and hope the Jews will just uh, take it quietly. You can't do that. Okay, now we can finally discuss what, we can discuss what was the Zealot movement all about. So the beginnings of the Zealot movement go back to dissatisfaction in the countryside, especially in the Galilee, uh, during the period after the Roman takeover. So the Roman takeover was in 63, and in the 50s and much of the 40s, you have uh, Antipater being the, the real power broker, with Hyrcanus II being the sort of the patsy who is a Kohen Gadol, but yet wields no real significant political weight. All right. The, those who are dissatisfied with the weakness of Jewish leadership and are so upset over the Roman takeover, which basically was without a fight. I mean, bear in mind, Pompey walked in and didn't really have to fight for the, for the country. She took it over. So you have people who want to lash out and eject the, uh, the foreign interlopers. So the first manifestation of this was Hezekiah, Chizkiah, in the days when Herod was the strategos of the Galilee, he was the commanding officer of the Galilee, 
and Hezekiah was was executed by Herod, which led to Herod's uh, uh, appearance before the Sanhedrin and the, the famous episode with Shemaiah uh, calling out his colleagues for being weak and, and, and um, uh, fearful of, of, uh, of a strong man named Herod. Okay, so that was the first generation, Chizkiah. But Chizkiah's death was not the end of his family's involvement in right-wing politics. His son is Judas the Galilean. But Judas the Galilean is actually a bit of a misnomer because... He really came from Gamla. Gamla, which is in the Golan Heights, or which was then known as Golanitis, um, was the hotbed of real nationalist zealotry. Gamla. So, why was he called Judas the Galilean? Because he spread his uh, ideology to the, the farmers of the Galilee, who historically were... Um, were, were ripe, uh, they, they were ready for, for a fight. Whereas the urban dwellers of the south, of Jerusalem, were more cosmopolitan, and uh, while they had certain nationalist fervor, it was not always so um, fiery. The people in the Galilee, they meant it. When they, when they thought of their Judaism, they thought of their nationalism, primarily. More so than their religiosity. They were always known as the Ameharats, as a place where the Torah wasn't so well known. So religiously they were pretty weak, but in terms of uh, Tzionut, uh, they, they were strong. Okay, so Judas the Galilean and his colleague Tzadok, who we know nothing about other than his name is Tzadok, um, lead a revolt in the year 6, in the year 6. What happened in the year 6? The country was ready for a revolt? What was happening in the year 6? So if you remember, after Herod died, the main body of, of Judea and Samaria and Idumea went to his son, Archelaus. And Archelaus was a horrible ruler, totally inept. The Jews complained. The Romans actually deposed him as king um, and sent him packing off to Europe. So at that point, you have direct Roman rule under uh, not, not what was called a procurator, but a prefect. We, we, we did this a few weeks ago, in the year 6. There was also a census conducted by Quirinius, uh, the, the legate from Syria. Why are census conducted? Taxes. Taxes. Why else? Army. Army. And why are taxes especially conducted, uh, a census conducted in uh, hostile, hostile territories? An awareness of the strength of the enemy. That's the other thing. It's an, intelligence. it's an intelligence gathering operation. In addition to the fact that it's going to raise revenue. So, uh, Judas the Galilean and Sadok are leaders of this uh, far-right faction within the Pharisees. And they see this as an opportunity to uh, eliminate the foreign, um, the foreign threat. The, the mainstream Pharisees had become, uh, well, they, they satisfied themselves with the religious uh, aspects of Judaism, of Torah, and were willing to forego implementing the political aspects of Torah. What are the political aspects of Torah? No, the Kohan, the Kohanim, uh, uh, the, the temple service is a, is a purely religious uh, affair. 
Well, yes, the, the position of high priest has, has a political element to it. But what are the political aspects of Torah? Kings. The king. Som tasim alech melech. Okay, what else? Don't uh, cut deals with the, 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 the heathen inhabitants of, of the land of Canaan and don't be good to them. Alright? Destroy their high places. Alright, there are, there are aspects of Torah law which require the Jew and the Jewish nation to set up, whether it's a monarchy or not, some kind of government in the Holy Land, to exercise sovereignty over the Holy Land, and to make sure that the, the thorn in the side, the heathens of Eretz Canaan, of Eretz Israel, go away, or at least are suppressed. And if you don't suppress them, what's going to happen? There'll be, it'll be a, an arrow in your eye and a thorn in your side. So you don't, you don't want to have a strong demographic group of Gentiles in the Holy Land, certainly not ones who are controlling the political fate of the country. Now, if you're satisfied with just religious affairs, of keeping Shabbos, Kashris, and, and, and offering sacrifices in the temple, then it doesn't bother you that there are a lot of heathens in the country and that the procurator is in charge or the prefect is in charge. You're just satisfied with your own piety, your own frumkite. But if you want to have the full flowering of Torah, like the radical Pharisees believed, what do you need to do? Fight to eliminate the heathen threat. Which means that when there's no longer a, 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 a Jewish king or even a, a, a Jewish vassal government, there's direct foreign rule. Fight till they kick them out. All right, just like Menachem Begin wanted to kick out the British. All right, you just you fight. Okay, now yeah. That seems to be an about face from the term the tzaddikim. Uh-huh. That whatever it is, we're under it's God's will. We're under the uh, the control of a foreign power, and we go ahead and roll with it. And if they go ahead and kill okay. us. That's okay, too. Okay, so that attitude was the dominant attitude in Second Temple life from basically the beginning of the Second Temple, from the days of Cyrus, all through the Hasmonean Rebellion. I mean, there was quiet acceptance of Achaemenid Persian rule, and then Alexander's conquest, and then a century of Ptolemaic rule, and a brief period of Seleucid rule, and then it got really bad and the Hasmoneans rebelled and turned everything up on its head. But for a long, long time, you're right. That yes, th- there was acceptance of, this is God's will, that there be a foreign overlord, and we'll, we'll live with it. Okay, but that attitude died uh, for a hundred years of ju- in, when, when there was Jewish independence, with the Hashmonaim, the and then it, it only came back because of the great strength, the, the brute strength of the Roman Empire, it was, for, for the political moderates, they just realized there's no way we're going to win. So let's revert back to the old ways, which we, which we were satisfied with under the Persians and the Greeks, uh, of our own piety is sufficient and we don't need to have Melech and, and Medina and the like. Okay, but for others, they want to fight. Okay, so what actually happened in the year 6 that led to this uh, aborted revolt? Because um, there was something of a revolt, but it, it, it didn't catch on like it would 60 years later. So, number one, the direct payment of taxes to Gentiles began because you no longer had the benefit of a quote-unquote Jewish king functioning as an intermediary. As horrible as the Herodians were, they were Jewish by religion. At least we could say that. I mean, they weren't Jewish by ethnicity, we've been through this before, but they were Jewish by religion. So during the days of Herod and Herod's son... 
from 37 all the way to uh, BCE till 6 CE, you could say, all right, the Romans are, are, are broadly in control, but at least we have, uh, we're under the immediate control of some kind of Jewish king. And when that comes to an end, the, the, the hardcore zealots say this is unacceptable. Second point, it is, it is possible, we, the historians are not 100% sure, that the exemption from tribute during sabbatical years was canceled after the year 6 of the Common Era. That uh, all throughout Second Temple times, the foreign kings realized you can't extract much tax revenue from Judea in a Shemitah year. Why? Because it's an agrarian economy, and they're not producing much, not producing anything. So what are you going to tax? You're going you're to make them go into debt to pay off a, a, a bill, tax bill, that really is absurd. All right, but... It sounds familiar from some discussion we had several years ago. Uh, this, this point may have come up. This, this point may have come up in, in previous years. So, uh, if you're now going to be taxed during the Shemitah year, so one approach is to... It, this did come up last year uh, in the Byzantine period because the question was, can you work the land in the Shemitah year? And I quoted to everybody a Gemara in Yerushalmi where a third century Amora said, you're allowed to work in Shemitah, we'll, we'll, we'll get rid of Shemitah because the bottom line is we have to live. We, we can't starve and we, can't, uh, and we have to pay our taxes. And the reactionaries said, no, 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 disgrace. You can't. Pinchas ben Yair said, you can't abolish the Shemitah. Even in the face of death and destruction, we have to keep Shemitah. So there was a, right, uh, there was a right-wing extremist versus moderate approach uh, to Shemitah observance then as well. Okay, but here what we're saying is, uh, if you have to pay taxes, it's a reason to, to, to object to this government and fight back. Uh, another reason is that the estates owned by Herod, which were passed on to his son Archelaus, were sold off by the Roman government in the year 6, when Archelaus was uh, deposed and sent off to Europe, and the lands were purchased by non-Jews. And so the royal farmers, the so-called royal tenant farmers, who were working, who were Jews working the land of Eretz Israel on behalf of a nominally Jewish king, and, you know, in a, in a fair uh, economic system, we're now tenant farmers in Eretz Yisrael to a non-Jewish owner. What's more depressing to a good nationalist Jew than to be in Eretz Yisrael working what you think is your land, but yet really is owned by, by a pagan? So that's, that's really going to uh, offend your, uh, your sense of self and, 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 uh, and nationhood. Okay? Also, there was the census. Historically, Jews don't like when there is a census, at least not a direct one. I mean, in the Bible, how do you conduct a census? With a shekel, with a shard of pottery, with a sheep, with some physical item, either of value or even not of value, that is in lieu of the counting of the head of the individual. But now we're having an actual census which offends people, and all the more so, what is the reason for the census? It's not for a Jewish king to know how many soldiers are in his army, or how many uh, citizens are in his realm for the sake of um, benefiting the state, but rather, it was perceived that this census was to enslave the people, to make them uh, debtors, and uh, basically to hurt the economic and political interests of Jews. Okay? So, um, one of the things that was done um, 
in this revo- in this revolt was to go to the archives and um, and burn them down. What's in the archives? Evidence of death. Evidence of death. Loan documents. And so um, Judas the Galilean, he was a firm believer in no slavery, cherut, liberation, for all peoples, even for the underclass who owe money. And that was the, the, the popularity of the zealot cause was among the, the, the underclass precisely because he was going to defend their economic interests and make sure that they don't get uh, sold into horrific slavery. I mean, this was a real concern for many people who couldn't feed their families and couldn't afford the tax bill. So he, he's looking out for their, their interests. Okay. Um, <coughs> now, Josephus identifies this year six as the beginning of the zealot movement. We know it has antecedents in the earlier generation, in the generation of Herod, but Josephus says it begins with Judas the Galilean right around the year 6. And he calls it the fourth philosophy. What are the other three philosophies? Pharisee, Sadducee, and Essene. The fourth being zealot. Why does he refer to them as philosophies? Is it a philosophy? Give it legitimacy. Okay, so... All of Josephus's writings are geared, well, most of them are geared towards a pagan audience. And they don't understand different uh, you know, factions within Judaism, the nature of the machloket. That's not their concern. They only understand philosophical schools. So Josephus depicts things in, in, in Hellenistic terms. So we have four schools of thought, four philosophies. Even though they're not arguing over philosophy, they're arguing over religion or politics. Okay. And Josephus, the, the Benedict Arnold that he was, blames the destruction of the state and the temple on the ascendancy of the fourth philosophy. It's not the fault of the Pharisees, it's not the fault of the Sadducees, it's not the fault of the Essenes. The zealots are to blame for the downfall of the state. Is he right? Well, towards the end, sort of yes. But on the whole, is he right? No. Because this, the, the, the society was being catapulted towards war for several decades. Uh, the, the, the Romans did whatever they could to uh, antagonize the Jewish people, collectively speaking, not just any one faction. So there was going to be war, there was going to be destruction, because the other side was a lot stronger. It was hastened by the fact that the zealots uh, you know, pulled some stunts that led to uh, a, a faster pace for the destruction. Or the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the upper, upper um, economic class? The Sadducees, for sure. The Pharisees, there are upper and lower economic uh, groups within well, them. The point I'm trying to make is yeah. that the Sicarii were the ones who were stabbing people in the street. Yes. They were stabbing the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. Oh, sure, yeah. The Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't walking around killing people. No, they weren't. They weren't. So I can see where he would put the blame on them. So by the, nine, by, by the 60s of the first century, you, it's very clear that the zealots are causing, uh, are aggravating tensions and causing war. But I think war would have happened anyway because it was just, uh, generally speaking, things were moving in that direction. Okay. Um, now, then the question is, what happened after, to Judas the Galilean? That revolt was suppressed. The New Testament says that he died and his followers were scattered and that the movement uh, collapsed of its own weight. But that's not really true. 
what really happened was that his sons took over. Simon and James, the sons of Judas and the grandsons of Hezekiah, were involved in political struggle. And if you remember last week, I mentioned the Jewish procurator, Tiberius Alexander, the nephew of Philo, the, the, the Egyptian Jew, who, who was a Meshumid, who gave up his Judaism for a career in the, in the Roman military, in the Roman political uh, world, and he executed the leading zealots, Simon and James, in the year 45. Now, there was a younger son, and Yeshomrim, there are those who say that it was a grandson of Judas, not a son, named Menachem. And Menachem was a zealot leader, and he played a role in the Great War after 66, and he assassinated the high priest, and he himself was assassinated. Okay, there was a grandson of Judas the Galilean named Elazar ben Yair. What do we know about him? He was the leader at Masada, who led to the, 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 the mass suicide. So there is a royal family of zealots, Chizkiah, Judas, Simon and James, and then Menachem, and then Elazar ben Yair are all relatives. Okay, there are other... Yeah. So his name was Jonathan. But in, in, in New Testament literature, he's known as James. Jonathan, Jonathan. No, no, no. We're talking about the zealot leader. He was Yaakov. Yaakov, yeah, Yaakov, yeah, sure. But this case, it was not Yaakov, it was Jonathan. Okay. Um, Who killed James' brother, Jesus? Again, I forgot. You just mentioned Ananas ben Ananas, Hanania, the, the high priest. So, um, now the question is who was the zealot leader according to rabbinic literature. All that we've seen thus far is basically New Testament and Josephus. But we have in the literature of Chazal another figure of a similar name. Of a similar name. Maybe it's the same person. Maybe there's a, it's all one big family here, one happy family, who leads the faction of extreme nationalists. So we have a Mishnah and Shabbos in the first chapter, and I've cited this once before. Elu min ha'halachot these are among the laws that were said in the attic of Hananiah, the son of Chizkiah, the son of Garon, or the son of Gurion, when they went to visit him. Now, the they are the disciples of, of the, the school of Shammai and Hillel. Why did they go to visit him, and why is he in the attic? Double bonus points if you know this one. What's he doing in the attic? No, he's not, he's not hiding, he's not spying. He's not sick. He's learning. What is he learning? What is he learning? No. It's a book of the Tanakh. Take a guess. It begins with a Yud. Huh? Book of the Bible that begins with a Yud. No. No. Yechezkel, correct. All right. So why was Hanania ben Chizkia ben Garon learning the book of Yechezkel? The answer is, What does that mean? Its words contradict the words of the Torah. How does the Yechezkel contradict the Torah? Well, in a lot of different ways, but give me one example. So it says that the Kohanim cannot marry a, a, a non-virgin. But what does the Torah say? Only the Kohen Gadol uh, must marry a Betulam Beit Yisrael. Uh, it also says that the Kohanim can't eat a Nevela. What's wrong with that? 
Nobody can eat an avela. Uh, no Jew is allowed to eat carrion, a uh, treif. Okay, so, and there are other ways that the book of Yechezkel contradicts the Torah. So, because of these contradictions, and the, the, the Pentateuch has absolute priority in, in, in our faith, so what are we supposed to do with a book that seems to be wrong? Well, we could cast it out of the canon of the Bible, throw it in, in, in the Geniza, and say it's not in, the, in, not in the Tanakh anymore. But they were hesitant to do that. There was a desire to save Yechezkel uh, in perpetuity. So they sent Hananiah ben Chizkiah ben Garon up, upstairs to the attic, to the, to the second floor of the base medrash, where no one would bother him, and they gave him 300 barrels of, of oil to, to, uh, to uh, light his lamp, you know, to, uh, he should have a light to learn all night long, to, to try to reconcile all the psukim, and he spent a year there, and he reconciled all the contradictions. Do we care about the reconciliations? No, that's not our concern now. What our concern is that they went to visit him. And when they went to visit him, what happened? There was a vote on certain halachic matters, and it turned out that the disciples of the school of Shammai outnumbered those of that Beit Hillel, and they decreed on that day 18 things. Now, of those 18 things, many of them, many of those decrees, uh, restrict or limit interactions between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, you know, limitation on Jews buying foodstuffs of various types from non-Jewish purveyors. So, clearly, from this incident, and from many other incidents, the House of Shammai represents a right-wing nationalist faction within the Pharisees, and the House of Hillel represents a left-wing you know, liberal, cosmopolitan, less zealot, uh, zealous uh, faction within the Pharisees. Okay, this makes a lot of sense too, because the the, the Hillelites were basically poor, poor urban dwellers. Just don't, you know, they they don't want to fight. They want to. They want city life, urban life, to go on as normal. They're not looking for political upheaval. Whereas the wealthier class. Uh, are the ones whose property and possessions are going to be expropriated by uh, procurators looking to bleed the country dry. So the, the wealthy have more to lose, therefore more to fight for. Um, now what, what do we know about this Hananiah ben Chizkiah ben Garon? Well, Chizkiah was a, was a rebel. We know that. And Hananiah, there were various Hananias who were rebels. And Garon or Gurion we don't know much about that, but there will be other people named Guryon later on uh, in, in, towards the, the war who play a role. Now let's go to the Gemara and Shabbos. The Gemara and Shabbos says, Mi katav Megillat Tanit. Who wrote the scroll of fasts? Megillat Tanit. Now, what is Megillat Tanit? Days when you can't fast. It's not, a, it's not a list of fast days. It's a list of half holidays when you're not allowed to fast. By the way, is there a scroll of fasts that's actually a list of fast days? There is. It's what's known as Megillus Tanis Basra, the second version of Megillus Tanis, which was published by the, in the Gaonic period in the 7th century, and is a little-known thing. It's in the back of the Steinsaltz, has it. Um, okay, so, so the, it's, a lo- it's a fairly long list, um, and it includes certain fasts that we no longer observe. Okay, but who wrote the Megillat Tanit, the scroll of fasts, which is the uh, list of, ha- of happy days? Amru, they said, Chanania ben Chizkia v'tziato. It was written by Chanania ben Chizkia and his entourage, his 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 uh, group. Shehayu mechabavinet hatzarot because they loved the tsarot. What are the tsarot? 
troubles. Who loves Tsaris? So, masochistic Jews, right. But, uh, but who loves Tsaris? Nobody loves Tsaris. Okay, so what we're talking about here is where the Tsara, the danger, came and went. And what happened? There was Geulah, there was Yeshua, there was salvation, like Purim. Okay, Purim tomorrow night. So the Tsara never actually happened. There was the threat of one, but there's a Yeshua, there's a salvation. So when you have that kind of salvation uh, coming on the heels of a, of, a, of, a, of a potential threat, you make a half holiday. And Purim is one of the leading holidays in the Megillah Ta'anit. It's in the Scroll of Fasts. That's his, the halachic basis. Okay, so Hananiah ben Chizkia is someone who's emphasizing the dangers posed by our heathen enemies and the fact that God saves us in the end every time. Let's eat. Let's eat. miyadam In the Seder. Okay, so, and then we eat. So, what do you see about Hananiah ben Chizkia? He's a right-wing nationalist. He's focusing on the evil goyim who don't like us, who mean to do us harm, and God comes to save the day. Okay. Now, what, what does the Gemara say about that episode where they went to his attic and the Shamaites defeated the Hillelites? Okay. So the Yerushami says, That very day, that day was as dark as the day when, when the, the Israelites made the golden calf. It's a terrible day for the Jewish people. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, gadshu et Rabbi Omer, So Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua disagree about what happened that day and whether it was good for the Jews or bad for the Jews. Age-old question, is it good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? So... What does it mean, Gadshu et They heaped up the pile of grain. And what is Machaku et They erased the pile of grain. It was low, it was less. So, to have a big heaping pile of grain is a good thing. That's a metaphor for something positive. To have a reduced supply of grain is a metaphor for something very negative. Why should this come as no surprise? Because in the immediate post-Temple era, who are the leading rabbis, or the second generation of Tanaim? Eliezer and Yoshua. What faction of the Pharisees do they represent? Eliezer is the right-winger, Yoshua is the left-winger. So Eliezer, who is a Shamuti, who is a Shamaite by, by uh, inclination and by, by learning, he says the day that the Shamaites won was a great day for the Jews. Whereas Yoshua says it was a horrible day for the Jews. So if you believe in, in antagonizing the heathens and fomenting war, then yeah, this is a great day. And if you believe in trying to d- uh, tamp down the flames of war because you want peace, then this was a horrible situation. Now, when did this happen? We don't know. Some say that the 18 decrees actually happened in the, in the 60s of the Common Era, very, very late, much lo- long after uh, Judas the Galilean and much after Hanani ben Chizkiah was alive. Okay, some say the 18 degrees were like emergency hygiene measures uh, during the, uh, the siege around Jerusalem so that people shouldn't die of, of disease. I, I don't buy that academic theory. I think that the 18 degrees are much earlier when the, when the schools of Shammai and Hillel were first getting off the ground in the early decades of the first century. Okay. Now, how do, uh, how do I know... Well, there's one more part of the Yerushalmi that the Rishonim and Achronim deny 
vociferously deny should be taken literally. You tell me if you take it literally. So the Gemara says, Tana Rabbi Yehoshua Onaya Talmidei Beit Shammai Amdu Lamata. The students of the house of Shammai stood at the bottom of the of the building. Vahayu Horagim Talmidei Beit Hillel, and they were slaughtering the disciples of Hillel. Literally, I'll figure it. Tani Shisha Mehem Alu. Six of them were killed. Vyashahar Amdu Alehem Becharavot Veramachim, and the rest uh, were attacked with swords and spears. Now, is this literal? Was there murder, uh, a campaign of murder in the attic of Hananiah ben Chizkiah or wherever this meeting took place between the Shamites and the Hillelites? Or is this just a metaphor for the Milchamta Shel Torah, the war of Torah? Now, Milchamta Shel Torah is, a, is an expression we find in rabbinic literature all the time uh, as, as like a virtuous thing. You know, the great rabbis duke it out in the battle of Torah. But nobody has a spear, nobody's drawing blood. Uh, we're just spilling ink on the page. Is this literal? So the Rishonim and Achronim said no. But it's possible that it was. And now I'll try to show to you why some of the scholars believe that it was literal. Because we have two stories in the Gemara about what happened to Hillel himself. Hillel himself. Right. Um, there was a famous machloket in Tractate Beitza about smicha. Whether or not smicha can be done on Yom Tov. What is smicha? So, so smicha, one type of smicha is ordination. The other is the laying of the hands on the animal for the sacrifice. So, that's mashicha. That's a little different. So, so the, the Torah requires smicha, and the Torah requires certain sacrifices to be brought on Yom Tov. But, the sacrifices brought on Yom Tov that are definitely known to be brought are communal and don't require smicha, only that of the private individual. What sacrifices must the average Jew bring on Yom Tov? Or in relation to the regalim? Chagiga, which is a shlamim, and olat ri'iyah, the burnt offering of showing up, the ri'iyah, you arrive at the temple, God sees you, you see God. Uh, there's also the Shamay Simcha, which is a later rabbinic edition. But the two main are the Shlamim of the Chagiga and the Ola of the Re'iyah. On Yom Tov, are you allowed to do work? Yes. No. What exceptions are there? Cooking. So, cooking includes slaughtering of animals. I mean, we don't do this today. You go to Gourmet Gladder of Yom Tov, you get your meat. But back in the day, they slaughtered an animal on Yom Tov for the sake of food on Yom Tov. So you're allowed to kill an animal to be a Korban Shlamim because a korban shlamim is eaten by people. It's eaten a little bit by God, a little bit by the Kohen, a little bit by the, by the, by the Bala Korban, the owner of the sacrifice. Who eats the Ola? It's burnt up. Burnt up, so God eats it. But the Kohen doesn't, and the, the, the Bala HaKorban does not eat. So can you bring an Ola Tri'iyah on Yom Tov? Yes. So Machlok is Shammai and Hillel. So Shammai says you can't, and Hillel says you can. So Hillel showed up to the temple one Yontif, and wanted to bring a, an Ola. And what's going to happen if the Shamaites are more powerful than he is? Let's find out. So the Gemara and Beitzah says, There was an incident involving Hill the Elder, brought his Ola, his burnt offering, to the courtyard, to do the leaning ceremony on Yom Tov. The disciples of Shammai uh, crowded around him. 
Amrulo, they they pestered him in a somewhat threatening fashion, said, Mativa Shelbehemazu, what is the nature of this animal that you're bringing here? Amalahem Nekevahi, he said, it's a female animal, and I'm bringing it for the Shlamim, for the, for the Chagiga. And Kiskes Lambiz Nava, he shook the tail just to pretend like he was showing that it was a, it was a female animal. But obviously, he didn't shake the tail that much to expose the genitalia. So, Halchulahem, they walked away. Now, what really happened? It was a male, and Ola is always a male sacrifice. The Shlamim can be a female. But he, he, he fooled them into thinking that it was what they regarded as a kosher sacrifice for that day. But in fact, it was only something that he would allow, not them. Why did he have to go through this charade? Because they meant business. And they would have threatened physical harm if they didn't get their way. Okay? Another. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Past precedent is largely insignificant in the later years of the Second Temple because you have uh, uh, factions within Judaism that have their own interpretation of what's right and what's wrong, and it doesn't interest them to know what was, in fact, the practice 200 years earlier. Because 200 years earlier, it could have been dead wrong. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so now the other story, other story involves the three uh, would-be converts. Who were the three would-be converts? Tell me what 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 what, what did they want to do? The three would-be converts. One wanted to learn the Torah while standing on one foot. One wanted to accept the Torah, the written Torah, but not the oral Torah. And one wanted to convert on condition that what? That he became the high priest and wear the, 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 the priestly vestments. And what did Shammai do to them? He took them with the ruler and smacked them and said, get out of here. And what did Hillel do? He accepted them. Now, of course, in each case, he gave a whole spiel about why, you know, I'm accepting you, but you have to change your attitude. In the case of the person who wanted to accept the Torah only with the written and not the oral, he taught him the Aleph base backwards and then taught him the Aleph base forward. And the guy says, no, but you taught me the other way, the other way. So he says, ah, it goes to show you, it's all oral. There's no such thing as the written Torah. It's all, it's all the Torah Shabbat Pesh since you're relying upon me to learn anyway. So it's a, good, it's a good trick. And in the case of the guy who, uh, who wanted to learn it all on one foot, he said, and the rest is commentary. And, and for the one who wanted to be the Kohen Gadol, he told him the Pasuk, okay, the stranger who comes near will die. And, he, and, and, the, and the would-be convert said, who, to whom does this apply? And he said, it even applies to King David. Now, the, the whole point was, that it doesn't just apply to, to converts who are not born Jewish, it applies to everyone who's not a Kohen. So it's not that I'm trying to offend you, it's that you're just not, you're not genealogically fit for this office. Therefore, become Jewish, but you know you're not going to be a high priest. Okay, so these three stories uh, show us the hostility of the Shamaites and the accepting character of the Hillelites. And the, this, this story was written after... Okay, so these stories may never have happened. Right. They may be totally apocryphal to, to cast a bad light upon Shammai. But all these stories, even if they're not factually true, you know, they didn't happen, they're depicting characters in a way that is consistent with what probably was their nature, which means that the Shammites got violent if, they, if, if things didn't go their way. 
And so I can believe, based upon the story of them ganging up against Hillel in the temple courtyard, and Shammai smacking people with a ruler, that the story of violence in the base Medrash, or in the house of Hananiah ben Chizkiah, may have been real violence. I don't know if anybody died, maybe someone did, you never know. I'm not, I'm not encouraging riots, but they might have happened. Okay? So, now, let's, let's just put this in perspective now. You have a wing of the Pharisaic party that can get excited and want to fight, even with fellow Jews at certain points in time. All the more so if the enemy is a, 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 a heathen oppressor. So, the zealots are not just a handful of people who are hotheads. The zealots are going to have a large supply of the amcha to work with because the people are dissatisfied with what's going on and they're, they're itching for a fight. Or at least some of them are itching for a fight. So, how did it all, how did it all break out? Let, let's, in the last few minutes that we have, deal with the, the breakout of violence. So according to Josephus, the violence began in Caesarea in the year 66, and it was provoked by uh, some Greeks who um, were sacrificing birds in front of the local shul. Remember that in Caesarea there had been this ongoing uh, debate over the citizenship status of Jews, and the Jews lost. So the Greeks, always enjoying rubbing it in the face of, uh, of their Jewish opponents, would offend the religious sensitivities of Jews by doing pagan worship right in front of our shuls. And if, if that's going to happen, the Jews are not going to uh, just take it, they're going to fight back. Now, the Roman garrison did not intervene, and uh, the long-standing Hellenistic and Jewish religious tensions took a downward spiral. Jews fight back, and the, 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 the so-called Greeks fight in response. So, a reaction to this, uh, this trouble in Caesarea... A decision was, was reached by Eliezer ben Hananiah, the son of a former high priest, to stop offering prayers and sacrifices for the Roman emperor in the Beit HaMikdash. That's a very uh, serious decision to take. Because, remember, all throughout the empire, what do the, 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 uh, the polytheistic peoples of the empire have to do? They have to show obeisance to the emperor by sacrificing to him as a quasi-god. The Jews didn't have to do that because we're monotheists and God is a, Hashem is a kale kana, a jealous God who doesn't allow us to, to worship other things. So what do we do as a, as a poor substitute? We offer a sacrifice to Hashem on behalf of the emperor's well-being. Not as the emperor being a deity, but the emperor being a prominent person, the king, the earthly king, who's worthy of, of, of having us pray on his behalf. Okay, so that's a, a compromise that we worked out with the Romans. But to stop doing it, it's a chutzpah. It's like if a shul was saying Hanosin Teshua Lamalachim for the President of the United States every Shabbos for, for, for seven, and, uh, seven years and eleven months of the presidency and the last month of uh, the, the, the presidency uh, they stopped saying it because they didn't like him anymore. Uh, so, okay. So, all right, don't, 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 don't quote me on it. All right. So, but it's not nice. And if, if the President found out he would uh, not be very pleased. So if the king finds out that uh, you're not sacrificing on his behalf, he's going to get very upset and maybe want to, to fight a war over it. Now that's what the Josephus tells us. But the Gemara has a different version. What's the Gemara's version? Kamsa u bar Kamsa. The, the Kamsa bar Kamsa story in Gittin, which is in Gittin 56, 
it's the beginning passage of, of three long pages that we study on Tisha B'Av about the destruction of the temple. Has this story, it's a legendary story about a Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, that uh, Bar Kamsa was invited to the party that he wasn't supposed to be invited to, and, uh, and he, he was kicked out. He says, I'll pay for my meal, I'll pay for the whole party. And the, the Baal HaSimcha says, no, get out, I don't want to see you. And the rabbis were complicit in, in the kick, kicking the guy out and embarrassing him. So what does he do? He has the, He tells the the the, the 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 king to send a sacrifice. He makes a mum in the sacrifice, but a mum that a blemish that is only a blemish according to the halachic standards, but not according to the Roman standards. And so the question is: Should the temple offer the sacrifice in violation of the law of the halacha, but in deference to the king, or should it stand on principle and refuse to offer the sacrifice and worry about the political aftermath? And what happens? Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkulis refuse to allow the sacrifice, lest people say that they offer Balmum in the Beis HaMikdash, that a blemished animal could be brought in the temple. And then the Talmud concludes, so, so, uh, so the Talmud concludes, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, An v'tanu toshel Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkulas, the humility of Zechariah ben Avkulas, hechriva ad beitenu, v'sarfa caused the destruction of God's house, and burned down the sanctuary, and caused us to be exiled from our land. Now, who is this Zechariah ben Avkulas? So he was a Sadducean, uh, or not Sadducean, but right-wing Pharisaic figure um, of, the, of the Temple era, late Temple era, who obviously had some kind of say over the affairs of the Temple cult and refused to allow this to go forward. Did this story really happen the way the Gemara depicts it with Kamsa and Bar Kamsa? Who knows? We weren't there. We don't know. It, may, it probably just makes for a good legend. It, sa- it sounds a little legendary, the Kamsa Bar Kamsa part, but what doesn't sound legendary at all, what doesn't sound legendary at all, what sounds very real, very, very real, is that at some point in time, a decision had to be made by overseers of the temple whether or not to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the king maybe there was a halachic problem with it, maybe there wasn't a halachic problem with it. The, the, blue, the mum aspect may be made up. But the key point is, do you bring the korban or do you not bring the korban? Knowing that failure to do so will lead to dire political consequences and possibly even the devastation of the nation. Destruction, yeah. Weren't Goyim allowed to bring sacrifice? Yes. And wasn't that cut off also? Okay, so according to, uh, the, the, according to the Josephus' reading, Gentiles, not just the emperor, but all Gentile sacrifices were now rejected. Which is a big deal. Which is a big deal. Okay, because the temple is supposed to be made to feel like the house of prayer for all, all the nations of the world. It's not just a Jewish temple. It's a temple where we worship the God of the Hebrews, which is the God of the universe, but for all peoples. Where the, Jews, where the, where the Jewish priests control the sacrificing, but anybody could make a volunteer, make a contribution. So to say that no Gentile can offer a sacrifice, including sacrifices on behalf of the emperor, is to say that we, the zealot Jews, the nationalists, are at war with the world. Okay? It's not just that we're at war with because uh, uh, um, the last of the procurators because uh, uh, Floris was corrupt or, or we don't like Nero or we didn't like some of the other procurators but rather we the Jews, the Jewish nation are at war with the world. Uh, it's, a, it's a bad attitude and it's a dangerous one. Now, the last point for tonight why does the Gemara use the expression His humility caused him to reject the sacrifice. How is it a matter of humility 
to take a the politically dangerous gamble. Okay, so that's one interpretation. I'll give you another one. I'll give you another one. We have said in the past that uh, here that the Gentile scholars of Jewish history and even some of the Jewish scholars understood the Pharisees to be uh, pietists who were not concerned with politics and the fate of the nation. And we've shown that that's, that's a false interpretation of history. And some of the better historians in the 20th century understood this and, and they, they proved it with, with example after example that the, that the Pharisees were concerned with the fate of, of, of the Medina, of the state, uh, and of you know, Jewish national existence in Eretz Yisrael, not just with, to- with the abstract religious parts of Torah. And how do we know this? Because certain of the halachot refer to Tikkun Olam, Takanat Shavim, this, that, laws about the king. It, many, many times, the pure Torah law is undermined. Sit back and do nothing. Don't blow shofar and Rosh Hashanah if it falls on Shabbos. Many, many ways we, we, we do not implement Torah to the fullest the pure, uh, absolute, do-right uh, version of the law. We have our own rabbinic version of the law. Okay? So, the anvetanuto, the humility, would be to say that I'm a pietist, and I, I'm afraid to tinker with the law even to the slightest, and so since by the letter of the law the, 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 the blemished animal, the korban balmum, cannot be brought, we won't bring it will implement exact Torah law, even though, from a national perspective, it's suicide. So, normal Pharisaic operating procedure would be, make a takana, make a something, uh, fix it so that we don't die. Fix it so that we don't die. Do an emergency measure. Whereas the Anvitanuto, the humility is, I'm not big enough to make such an emergency measure, I'm going to do the implementation of absolute Torah, and we all die. Okay. It wasn't functioning properly. Okay, so we'll stop here, and next time we'll continue with what actually happened to Floris in 66 and then the rest of the, the war.